in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 this morning. And this verse is really the height of all biblical revelation. I don't think that's an exaggeration to say we are really at the high point. We're at the mountaintop here. And actually this week I was scared, nervous to even preach this verse because it's so grand and so exalted. And I know there's just no way that I can do it justice. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is really the summit of the Beatitudes here. In this little verse, we have all the joy of heaven. This is the expectation and anticipation of every saint. Here is the hope of heaven. They shall see God. This hope is the only thing that will sustain the believer through the next two Beatitudes. Right after this one, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peacemaking is a difficult task. When you, when you try to make peace between two hostile parties, one of them could likely turn on you. And it could be that the peacemaking that Jesus is talking about refers to evangelism, seeking to bring sinners into a right relationship with God. And when sinners who are hostile to God by nature are told that they are separated from God because of their sin and they are under his wrath and that God commands them to repent and that if they don't repent, they will be cast into hell, sometimes their hostility will turn and be turned against the messenger. And hence Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And so peacemakers will be persecuted. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so what will sustain the believer through difficulties and persecution? How can we endure when others revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on Jesus' account? In such a case, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what is this great reward in heaven? What is our great reward in heaven? Is it our glorified bodies? Is it our residence in the New Jerusalem where even the streets are going to be paved with gold? Is our reward in heaven that we can eat from the tree of life? Jesus tells us that we will drink from the fruit of the vine. He says in Matthew 26, 29 that he's waiting to drink from the fruit of the vine until he does it again with us in the kingdom. How about Isaiah 25 and verse 6, which says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food with full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. 
a heavenly feast of steak, that's where the marrow comes in there, the heavenly feast of steak and perfectly paired wine. The verses after that say that death will be done away with for all time. And all of these are part of our reward to be sure. And I don't want to minimize those wonderful things that we're looking forward to, but if you really think about it, these things won't ultimately satisfy our souls. An eternity of steak dinners on golden plates and golden platters with a side of fruit salad and aged wine won't fulfill our longings in and of it of themselves. We need more than that because we were created for more. We were made to worship God forever. We were made for intimate fellowship and relationship with the triune God. And that's what Jesus promises, promises us in our text. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This sight of God is what will fill our hearts for all eternity. Here's what makes heaven, heaven. All other rewards of heaven will be blessings only in conjunction with this blessing. And the hope of this sight is what sustained all the saints through all of biblical history in all their afflictions. And in theology, this is called the beatific vision. The beatific vision. This is what the saints in the Bible, they longed for. This is what they were looking forward to. Job 19 verse 25 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And then Job says, my heart faints within me, as he looks forward to this sight of his Redeemer. David said in Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, When I awake, and he's talking about awaking in the resurrection, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The previous Psalm, Psalm 16, verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Moses longed for this as well. He said in Exodus 33, 18, Show me your glory. Moses wanted to see God, but God said to him, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. But that's what Moses wanted. He wanted to see the glory of God. Psalm 24 talks about this as well. It talks about this one. David says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Who is the one who's going to receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation? Verse 6 says, Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Those who seek God's face will receive blessing from the Lord. Psalm 27 and verse 8, David says again, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. In Psalm 42, verse 1, the sons of Korah say, As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so my soul pants, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
In these passages and many other passages, we see the desire of God's people throughout all the ages has been to see God's face. And again, theologically, this is called the beatific vision. I called this message the blessed vision. And I want to explore what it it is, what this means. I want to explore what this blessed vision consists of and who will experience it. In other words, all I'm really asking this morning of the text is, what does it mean? What does it mean to be pure in heart? And what does it mean to see God? How are we to understand this? And what we'll see is that there's a close connection between being pure in heart and seeing God. And we've seen this connection with all the other Beatitudes as well. It was the merciful who would receive mercy. It was those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness who would be satisfied. It was the one who mourned who would be comforted. And in the same way, the pure in heart will see God. Much like like last week, and really all of these Beatitudes, we see here something future is promised to those who are in a particular state of being now. So there's this future promise to somebody who's in a particular state right now. The person who is presently pure in heart, will one day be rewarded with seeing God. The person who is presently pure in heart will in the future see God. They are blessed now because being in that state, they will one day be rewarded with what is promised. To be pure in heart now means that you are in an an enviable, blessed condition because you will see God then. And I want to focus on these two aspects today in reverse order. So I'm going to go about this backwards. And you might see why I'm doing it that way when we get to the second point. And so we could call this, if you're taking notes this morning, two aspects of the blessed vision. Two aspects of the blessed vision. And first of all, we're going to see the coming blessed vision. This is the blessed vision in the future. This is when they will see God at that future state in the kingdom of God. And then secondly, we're going to see the current blessed vision, and that's talking about their state right now, what they currently are like right now. So two aspects of the blessed vision. First of all, we're going to look at the coming blessed vision, and the promise is that they shall see God. Now this immediately creates a problem for us, because elsewhere, Scripture teaches that we cannot see God. We already saw Exodus 33 where Moses asked God, show me your glory. Listen to the Lord's response there. This is Exodus 33, 19. And you could turn if you want with me. I'm going to go through some scriptures pretty quickly this morning. But if you want, you could try to go there. Exodus 33, 19. In response to Moses asking, show me your glory, the Lord says this. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in in a cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
And so Moses was unable to see God's face, and the explanation was, for man shall not see me and live. There's something so great about seeing God's face that would it would have killed Moses. And the same thing goes for us. It would kill us to behold the face of God. Instead, Moses was allowed a glimpse of God's back. And this was fulfilled in Exodus 34. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses did not see God's face, but he did see God's backside. But notice, mostly what Moses received when he asked for God's glory was a proclamation. God preached a God-centered sermon to Moses. Yahweh proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And that makes sense because God is spirit. God doesn't have literal hands or a back or even a face. God doesn't have a body. And that's why the New Testament tells us that God is invisible and God cannot be seen. For example, 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Maybe I read it too fast there. King of the ages, immortal, invisible. Invisible. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15 says, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is invisible and therefore he can't be seen. Again, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He is invisible. And you might say then, well, what did Moses see? What did Moses see? Hebrews 11.27 says it this way, By faith he left Egypt, speaking about Moses, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Seeing him who is invisible. Moses Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible, and he did this by faith. And so we could ask then, how do you see the invisible God? How do you see the invisible God? And there's a couple things that, that I want to say about this. First of all, God is able to give some kind of an outward manifestation of His glory. God is able to give some outward manifestation of His glory. Moses would have seen something when God passed by. Actually, in Exodus 24 and verse 9, just a a few chapters before what we saw in Exodus, 
Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of, of Israel went up. And Exodus 24 verse 10 says, And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And so they saw something, but it couldn't have been God who is invisible. And there's other times in biblical history where people saw the glory of God. They saw some kind of a visible splendor, a shining light. But notice when Moses saw God's hand on the rock and and when Moses saw God's back, he didn't write about the physical sight of the whole thing. He wrote about what God proclaimed. And so we could say, number two, that seeing God is not so much about a physical sight with our eyes as it is about something else. Seeing God is not so much about a physical sight with our eyes. Seeing God is often used as a synonym with knowing Somebody who is darkened in their understanding, we say, is blind. They can't see. That means they don't understand. And so to see God is to know God. And I think if you think about it a little bit, you'll agree that knowing God is actually better than seeing God. An outward sight of His majesty would be amazing, but that's not really what the believer is longing for. We want a a vision of His character We want to know Him and we want to experience that relationship with Him where He reveals Himself to us and then we respond to Him. And so thirdly, we could say then about seeing God, about seeing the invisible God, is that the invisible God is seen in Christ. He is seen in Christ in really in both ways. He's seen in Christ with our physical eyes and He's seen in Christ intellectually or with with our mind or with our heart. And so he is seen in Christ physically and intellectually. The physical manifestations in the, uh, of God in the Old Testament were manifestations of the second person of the Trinity, of God the Son. It was God the Son who appeared to Abraham with the two angels when Lot was rescued out of Sodom. God the Son appeared in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night when Israel came out of Egypt. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It was God the Son who appeared to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And I just want to read that passage to you. Isaiah chapter 6. And you could turn there if you want in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood two, stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh 
of hosts. Isaiah saw Yahweh with his eyes in this vision, but in John chapter 12, verse 41, we learn that Isaiah really saw the glory of Christ and spoke about him. But again, what really captured Isaiah? What, what was it that really captured Isaiah's heart? Was it the length of his robe? No. Isaiah was chiefly impacted by the holiness of God in the face of Christ. And from then on, Isaiah called Yahweh, he called him the Holy One of Israel. In Christ, we see the invisible God both physically and spiritually. And so Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so to see Jesus is to see the Father. And to know Jesus is to know the Father. And so John 1 and verse 18 says again, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so nobody has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ is the one who has made Him known. God makes, sorry, Jesus makes God visible to us. In Jesus, we see not only a visible manifestation of God, we see God in human flesh, but we also see the character of God on display. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus Christ is God on display. In Matthew chapter 17, we have the record of Jesus' transfiguration. And the veil of His humanity was peeled back and Peter, James, and John were given a glimpse of His divinity. Matthew 17 verse 1 says, And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John His brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And so Peter, James, and John were granted this vision of the deity of Christ. And Peter spoke about that vision in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. But he doesn't mention the physical sight of God's glory in that context as much as he mentions the glory of his person. He talks about his majesty, his honor, his glory. John 2 in 1 John, or sorry, in John chapter 1, he talks about how he saw the glory of Christ, but he emphasizes how he is full of grace and truth. Not the, not the visible manifestation, but the manifestation of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And if you're following this, you should be starting to get a picture of what it means to see God. We will see with our resurrected physical eyes, we will see an outward manifestation of the glory of God and we will see Jesus Christ there in His human body. But primarily what we're going to see is 
we're going to come to know God in new ways, in, in greater ways. This, this vision of Christ is mostly about knowing God and Christ. And to kind of show you that, again, I want you to go with me to Revelation, and we'll start in chapter 21. <clears throat> Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Here we see that we will have access to God in heaven and he will wipe away god will wipe away every tear and we will dwell with him now jump down to verse 22 of the same chapter and i saw no temple in the city for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the lamb the lord god almighty and the lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives it light and its light or its lamp is the Lamb. Now notice how the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple and the light of heaven. We have the, the Lord God Almighty, the Father, and we have the Lamb, the Son. The Father and the Son are together throughout Revelation 21 and 22. We will see the light of the Father and we will see the light of the Son. In Revelation 22 and verse 1, the water of life flows from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb. And so the Father and the Son are together. Look at Revelation 22, verse 3. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Now see how God and the Lamb are distinct. And yet, when it says His servants will worship Him, notice how it doesn't say them. You see that? It's, it, they will worship Him. They will worship God, the one God who is manifested in distinct persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the persons of the Trinity are distinct and yet one. And then right away in the very next verse, Revelation 22.4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Now whose name is going to be on their foreheads? Well, it's the name of the Father and the name of the Son. It's the name of God the Father, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That name, His name, that singular name of Father and Son will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Again, Father and Son will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. But notice again, verse 4, they will see His face. The face that we are promised to see is His face. That is God's face, which also includes the face of the Lamb. 
So again, what will we see? We will see the glory of God and the Lamb. And there will be some visible manifestation of both Father and Son, but chiefly this will be a seeing the invisible God with the eyes of our soul. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, quote, The beatific vision of God is not a sight with the eyes of the body, but with the eyes of the soul. It is not in beholding any form or visible representation or shape or color or shining light in which the highest happiness of the soul consists, but it is in seeing God who is a spirit spiritually with the eyes of the soul. End quote. In this vision, we will behold the greatness of our God in ways that we can hardly imagine, that we can hardly fathom now. The glory splendor and majesty of God's infinite character will be revealed to such that we will delight ourselves it will it will be revealed such that we will delight ourselves in praising honoring and worshiping him again Jonathan Edwards says quote the soul is capable of apprehending God in a thousand times more perfect and glorious manner than the eye of the body is The soul has in itself those powers whereby it is sufficiently capable of apprehending spiritual object without looking through the windows of the outward senses. The soul is capable of seeing God more immediately, more certainly, and more fully and gloriously than the eye of the body is. End quote. Herman Bavink said it this way. He says, quote, Fellowship with God will be richer deeper and more blessed than it ever was or could be on earth since it will not be disturbed by any sin or interrupted by any distance or mediated either scripture or nature contemplation understanding and enjoyment of god make up the essence of our future blessedness the redeemed see god not to be sure with physical eyes but still in a way that far outstrips all revelation in this dispensation via nature and Scripture. And so they're saying that there's going to be a greater vision of God than we could have either through nature, through the creation where we see the glory of God displayed, or through Scripture where His attributes and character are displayed to us. And so there's going to be an even greater sight. Now this doesn't, again, deny that there is some physical sight But the chief glory and the chief happiness of our souls consists in this revelation of God, which is, which is far outstrips all that we have enjoyed until now. And so, brothers and sisters, the Christian will enjoy direct, perfect fellowship with the infinite God. Right now, our highest joy is fellowship with God. But that fellowship is mediated through things like scripture and creation, fellowship with other believers, prayer and other such things. Right now, our greatest treasure is knowing God and Christ, but our knowledge of him is darkened by sin and by doubt. But on that day, when we see God, we will have a direct and immediate fellowship with him without any sin or any doubt. Again, to quote Edwards, There shall be a view of God in His being and in His power and wisdom and holiness and goodness and love and all sufficiency that shall be attended with intuitive certainty without any mixture of unbelief 
and with much greater certainty than any sight with the bodily eye. And then it shall be perfectly clear without any view of darkness. Now, how much darkness is there mingled with that spiritual sight which the saints have of God's glory in this world? But then, there shall be no obscurity, nothing to cloud the understanding or to hinder the clearness of the view. End quote. Oh, what a sight that will be. According to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, we will see Christ as He is, and that sight will transform us into His image. This is the coming blessed vision. We will have such a sight of the goodness and greatness of God that will delight our hearts for all eternity. We will see the beauty of His splendor and majesty that will draw from our hearts the most expressive worship imaginable. We will respond to this vision with a reciprocation of adoration and praise and thankfulness and other such expressions. We will fellowship with the triune God and it will be exceedingly better than any man or angel can describe. And this hope of the coming blessed vision is what shapes what I'm going to call number two, the current blessed vision. Number two in our outline, the current blessed vision. And now we ask, who will be allowed to see this highest of joys? Who will enjoy this greatest vision, the beatific vision? And as with the other Beatitudes, we can say that this privilege is for the Christian and the Christian only. The genuine believer. The one who is truly born again. And each Beatitude describes the Christian, the disciple of Jesus Christ, from a slightly different angle. The true disciple of Christ, as we've seen, is poor in spirit. He or she knows that they have nothing in themselves to bring to God and that they are dependent on His mercy. They are spiritually bankrupt. They mourn their sin. It's no longer a joy. It's now a grief to them. They are meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. The believer is one who wants to live for God's honor and glory in this world and they want God to direct their steps. We've seen that the believer is also merciful. We saw last week that the believer is merciful because they have seen how astonishingly merciful God has been to them. And each beatitude has described the believer as blessed. They are blessed because they're in a certain state. And because they are in that state, they will be rewarded in the future. And each reward that we've seen went with the state that came before it. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And so there's a connection between each blessed state and the future reward. And that connection is important to see as we begin to think about what it means to be pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Whatever it means to be pure in heart is going to be closely connected and aligned with seeing God. As in the other Beatitudes, there's also an emphasis in the Greek text on the word they. We could say only the pure in heart will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they and they only shall see God. 
Only the pure in heart will see God. No one will see God who is not pure in heart. Now that is a scary thought, isn't it? Nobody will see God unless they are pure in heart. If we are not pure in heart, we will not see God. That maybe reminds us of a similar text in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. It says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so what does this mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we must be perfect, right? It can't mean that we must be perfect. We've already seen that the true believer is bankrupt in spirit and has no merit of their own. The true believer hungers and thirsts after righteousness, which must mean that they don't have as much righteousness as they would like to have. If pure in heart means that we must be entirely free of sinful desires in this life, then no one will see God. Actually, Proverbs 20 and verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Who can say, I have made my heart pure and I am clean from my sin? And the implied answer to that question is nobody can say that. Not even the greatest saint who ever lived according to Scripture can say that they have made their heart pure and that they are entirely free of sin. The true believer hates sin, but continues to struggle against sin as they grow in holiness. Now let me say this then, whatever it means to be pure in heart must be, like the other Beatitudes, a characteristic of all true Christians. This must characterize every true Christian. And I keep saying things like true and genuine when I talk about a Christian. I say born again. I I say born again Christians because this sermon itself, the Sermon on the Mount, recognizes that not everyone who professes Christ is a genuine, true, born again Christian. Because there are many who say that they are Christians and they will be excluded from the kingdom because these things that we've been looking at in the Beatitudes do not describe them. So, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, the word pure means clean or free from adulterating manner. Like clean linen is white and not dirty. That's often used to describe linen. Pure linen, clean linen, free from other materials and adulterating matter. When it's used of metals, it means pure like Pure gold isn't full of nickel and other elements. Pure gold is gold and gold alone. From there, the word was then used to mean pure morally, to be free of moral filth. But we've already said that that can't be the primary meaning here. Here, Jesus is talking about a pure heart. Now, the heart in Scripture is the core of the person. The heart is the mind and will and emotions. The the heart is the whole inner person. It's the inside of a person that drives their outward behavior. The the heart is the affections as well. It's the it's what we treasure. It's what we value. It's it's really all of what's inside us. Our mind, will, emotions, affections, what we love, what we treasure, what we value. 
And so what does it mean then for this heart to be unmixed? It means that the mind and the will of this person is unmixed. There is a pure focus of the affections. Such a person at the core of what drives them, such a person treasures one thing. Some commentators describe this as being single-minded or utterly sincere. One commentator said that the, the pure in heart refrain from idolatry. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is loving anything or letting anything other than God take your focus or motivate you or, or draw your attention away. We could say that the pure in heart person doesn't let anything other than God capture their heart, mind, or affections. Let me say that again. The pure in heart person doesn't let anything other than God capture their heart, mind, or affections. They refrain from idolatry. And so they are single-minded in devotion. They are single-minded in commitment. And what is their single mind devoted to? After all, somebody could have a single focus on any number of things. And you've probably already guessed then what this single-minded focus is focused on. They want to see God. Or we could say it this way, they are singularly focused on God with all their heart, with all their mind, and with all their strength. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. This is a person who has seen in some small measure the greatness of God, and now they want to live the rest of their lives for Him. They want to live to please Him in all they do. They want to honor Him with their lives. All their lives. They want, they want all their lives and everything they do to be done as an act of worship towards God and Jesus Christ. Now what I've been describing to you is what the Bible teaches that a true Christian is. Now I don't mean that a true Christian does this perfectly, but in the, in the, in the core of their being, the true Christian wants to glorify God with their lives. They want to live for Jesus' sake, even though they may recognize within them other desires. If they could, the believer would cast off all their other desires and live for Jesus' sake because they know that He is worthy and those other things, whatever they are, are not. Now let me show you this in a couple other places in Matthew. I just want to show you that this is what characterizes a true believer. This single-minded devotion and desire to live for and honor God. Go to Matthew 10. 37. We'll start there. <clears throat> Matthew 10.37 Jesus says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In verse 37, 
Jesus is claiming that if we don't hold Him above our closest family relations, we are not worthy of Him. In other words, Jesus is of so much more value that if we don't recognize it, we don't deserve to have Him. The Christian is one who by grace recognizes the true value of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Christian values Christ so highly that according to verse 38, he or she will even be willing to suffer for his sake, to take up their cross and follow after him. A Christian is one who sees such a treasure in Christ that they are willing to lose their life for his sake. And to lose our lives for Christ is not a grief, it's not a burden, it's not something we endure merely so that we can go to heaven. It becomes a great joy, and it is a great joy to be able to serve one so great as Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus teaches again, just a few chapters later, Matthew 13.44, turn there. Matthew 13.44, Jesus says, "The, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, there's so much that I could say in these few verses. And when we finally come to Matthew 13, I'm going to probably spend a whole hour on those three verses. But notice, the kingdom is like a treasure in both parables. Both parables, this treasure is worth selling everything to obtain it. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven is more to be valued than all else. And as we've seen today, What is the chief reward of the kingdom of heaven? Seeing God and seeing Jesus Christ. To find this treasure is to find the treasure of all treasures, the treasure worth forsaking all other treasures for. And so, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, have you found in Jesus Christ and in God the Father the pearl of great price? Is it a great privilege and joy for you to be able to sacrifice anything for His sake? At the core of your being, do you recognize that He is worthy of all glory and honor and dominion and power? Let's go to one more place here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, right in the Sermon on the Mount, in this very same sermon. In verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so let me ask you again, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Is it in God and Christ? Or is it on this earth? Is it in this world? In verse 22, Jesus continues, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, or if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light then, if then the light in you is darkness, how great 
is the darkness. The eye here is used for the focus of the person. Is your eye singly focused on good treasure? Or is it singly focused on evil and on the things of this world? He goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And really, if we think about it, there's really only two places a person can focus. Either on God or on not God. Now, under the category of not God, there's all kinds of things that people can focus on. All kinds of sin, all kinds of worldliness, all kinds of idols and treasures and things that people can value and love. But really, ultimately, at the core, it's either God or not God. And the Christian is the one who is devoted to God. The unbeliever is focused on not God. The Christian's treasure is eternal in God and Jesus Christ. The unbeliever's treasure is temporal in this world. The Christian will enjoy sweet communion with God. The unbeliever will not. My friends, to live for or to love, to treasure or to value anything above God is utter folly. Because there is nothing greater than God, nor is there anything even comparable to Him. And if you have been doing this, if you have been treasuring something of this world that is not God, then I urge you to repent today, to turn from your sin, turn from your wickedness of worshiping something other than the great God of creation and of salvation. Jesus will forgive your sin if you turn from it and come to Him. Set your heart purely on Him. Turn from sin to Him. You will enjoy Him now, imperfectly in this life, and on the on that most glorious future day, you will see God in Christ by the Holy Spirit, and nothing will interrupt that vision for all of eternity. And brothers and sisters, if you have this pure heart, this heart that sees the worth of God and Jesus Christ, then congratulations. You are a blessed person. You are blessed. You are in an enviable position because many don't see it. Many look at Christ and God and go, eh, I'd rather have my sin. I'd rather have my beer. I'd rather have whatever it is in this world. I'd rather have something else. And they don't see the treasure of God. Many are blind to the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But if you see it and at the core of your being, you recognize that God is worth it and that He is worth living for and He is the treasure of great treasures, the treasure of all treasures, then you are blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the amazing blessing, the amazing blessing of knowing Jesus Christ. We thank You that You are the one who turns on the light. The one who said, let there be light. You're the one who turned on the light in our hearts so that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we pray as Your people, help us to live even more for You because that's what we desire at the core of our being, Father. We want to live for You. You are worthy. You are worth our lives. You are worth suffering for. You are worth everything because there is no greater treasure. There is nothing greater than you that we can set our hearts on. 
And so help us to set our hearts on you, we pray. And we pray that you would open people's eyes to see your glory, to turn from those vain things in this world, and to turn to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.